Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Single Tracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Chris Kokalis. Chris is the founder and president of Pivot Cycles based in Tempe, Arizona. Pivot is known for creating cutting-edge, high-performance mountain bikes and also for sponsoring many talented athletes over the years while also giving back to the community. So thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your mountain biking background. Well, I started uh, actually racing BMX when I was about like 12 or 13, <laughs> and then um, came out to, to, I used to come out to Arizona for the Winter Nationals, and you could race every night of the week um, out here. I grew up in Chicago, and that wasn't the case, certainly. Right. So uh, I chose to go, go to school out here uh, mostly so I could get my pro BMX license and race every night of the week. And uh, wow. uh, when I came out here, I was doing that, and but quickly discovered mountain biking. It's in about the first three months I was here, and the, and the uh, BMX thing faded away pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I got pretty excited about mountain biking. And yeah, it was... It was an interesting time back then because the the mountain bikes that was in 1987, and the mountain bikes then were just getting going, and and they were total piece of <laughs> um, compared to what we have today. Yeah, and everything that we had seen break in BMX in the 80s, it was like reliving the bad dream: uh, spindles, crank arms, wheels, hub axles, yeah, basically everything. And uh, and so that was an interesting time to kind of see and being involved in the manufacturing side of mountain biking kind of through an era where we pretty much had to transform fairly quickly to what problems BMX had already solved. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, the earliest bikes that people were riding that that they would have considered mountain bikes were like these clunkers that were, I mean, they're basically cruiser bikes. And yeah, to think like, why didn't it evolve from BMX? It's kind of an interesting thought. Like, why not just scale up some of those parts and, and call it a mountain bike? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it did come more from the cruiser and the road bike side, and so it really never had the the benefit of uh, of the development of and the beatdown that stuff took on the on the BMX side for sure. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, it sounds like you have a really solid background in BMX and that style of riding. How would you describe your, your mountain bike style of riding today? I'd say just all around trail bike rider. I mean, I enjoy thing, places like Whistler, but really more so just riding anywhere and everywhere. Love Moab, everything out in the West. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then even the occasional like 24 hour cross country race, but I wouldn't describe myself as a cross country racer or a full-on park guy but everywhere in between and and those ends of the spectrum just i just love mountain biking yeah well i've never ridden with you but i've heard from other journalists and people in the industry that you're pretty fast 
<laughs> yeah. It, it depends. You get me in roots, um, and I'm not so fast. I'm, I, I like to joke that I'm allergic to mud. But. <laughs> so the desert riding like suits your rocky stuff. I'm, I'm, I go pretty well. So okay. So tell us about the first mountain bike that you designed. Yeah. So I was actually uh, I was managing a bike shop here in Tempe, Arizona, and uh, in 1987, and a guy walks in and he had braised elevated chainstay kind of X frame looking thing mm -hmm. that the ge the geometry was pretty messed up on, and he was actually he was the original founder of Norba. Oh wow! Or original president of Norba. I don't know if he was the actual founder, but uh, back then Norba was underneath the ABA, the American. BMX or Bicycle Association, but the BMX governing body. And um, he worked in a manufacturing job and uh, knew how to braise. And I was checking out the bike and there's some certain things cool about it and certain things that weren't so cool. And <laughs> I was, by that point, I was super into geometry. I was in engineering school and drawing bikes up all the time and uh, had pictures of some of uh, Richard Cunningham's Mantis and Nishiki stuff on the wall in my dorm room. <laughs> And, uh, and was just super into it. And, uh, I, I was really wanting to learn how to build a bicycle frame. Yeah. And so I, I told him I would draw, I would draw plans if he would teach me how to braise. And so we started, uh, kind of loosely started a company called Sun Eagle Bicycle Works. And his name was Alan, is, is Alan Vaughn. And, uh, we, uh, him and I, and one other guy, uh, another friend of his would build bikes in the, in the evenings, uh, at his house, uh, we had a test in, in mountain bike action in 1989. It was actually called bikes of the future. And, uh, so we were in there alongside, uh, two or three mantises and two Nishikis. What, what was like futuristic about it? Well, it was an elevated chain state bike. Uh, yeah, it was an elevated chain state bike, which was super unique for the time. I mean, mantis started that and then a wave of followed. And so there was probably, I think about five or eight companies, maybe five companies total in the tests. Mm. Yeah, Nishiki, Mantis uh, being a handful of the bikes and then uh, three other companies. Uh, there was a company called Brave. Uh, yeah, uh, anyway, it was it was cool. They were kind to us. Looking back at that that frame, I still have the first frame I ever, I ever built uh, here in the office. And uh, uh, yeah, it was an elevated chainstay bike. Uh, the front triangle was kind of an X frame where the, uh, a small, like seven eighths diameter tube went from the seat tube down to the head tube. If, uh, if you, anybody's ever seen like an SE racing quadrangle, uh, BMX frame, the front triangle was quite similar to that. And then elevated chainstays and it, it had, uh, uh, cool noodles brazed on for all the cable routing. It fit two water bottles in the front triangle, even with the X frame design and wow. had a, a tab brazed on for a height, right. <laughs> and, uh, um, pump pump pegs and basically uh, a lot of details yeah well, it sounds like a lot of bmx influence too yeah and just everything wanted everything to be as integrated as possible when we did the bike and uh, not have uh, things hanging off the seat clamp for the height right or having to put a, a little these they had these little zephyl had these little plastic like hose clamp things with a little tab on them to hold your pump in place and so just built all of that stuff into the frame and and then uh, I had a friend that used to be a painter at Fat Chance that lived here, and he would actually fly back uh, east to Massachusetts when they had runs of custom paint uh, jobs that needed to be done, and he would stay there for a few weeks and paint for them. And so 
he did all the painting on our bikes. So that, that was pretty cool because we'd have it powder coated and then he would airbrush all kinds of designs on them. So it was, it was pretty neat. But uh, we built, I don't know if we built 10 frames at some point. I'd, <laughs> I decided that uh, I didn't really, uh, we didn't know how to weld aluminum. I didn't uh, think that we could get a elevated chain stay bike stiff enough. Uh-huh. And so uh, I told Alan I didn't want to do chain, elevated chain stay bikes anymore, and he did. So I stopped going over to his house. <laughs> <laughs> that was the loose partnership that we had. Yeah. And uh, and then, yeah, we during that time, also, uh, I was racing and breaking a lot of things, as I mentioned, and a, a mo- lot of problems with bottom brackets. So I designed a, a bottom bracket that actually uh, moved the the bearings outwards, everything was a two degree taper spindle back then mm. and, uh, made a much fatter spindle in the middle, um, and took the bearings all the way out to the edge of the two degree taper. So with like a cook's brother's crank, it would tighten down almost right to the cups. Mm-hmm. And then there was double bearings on each side. So it was a pretty burly piece for the, for the era. Yeah. And was having those made. And then uh, I met a guy who uh, was a titanium welder at an aerospace company here, the Allied Signal Aerospace. They built uh, Learjet engines. And mm-hmm. he stopped in the bike store and just started telling me he knew everything about welding titanium. And I said, I was, I don't know, maybe 20, 21. And uh, I said, well, I know everything about making bicycles, And uh, <laughs> as a 20-year-old would say. And um, so we started uh, doing stuff in his garage. And that one, uh, became pretty serious. And we came up with the name Titus and in 1990, we wound up, uh, I actually started doing, uh, prototypes for people. And, uh, I had met John Rader, the guy who invented the threadless headset mm-hmm. at a bike race. And he had a bike design, uh, that he wanted prototyped. I started building all the prototypes for those. He sold that design to Univega and my senior year in college, I got a purchase order from Univega for 175 titanium full suspension bikes. Wow. And uh, had to decide if, if I was going to go get a job or build bicycles. <laughs> Sounds like you had a job. Yeah. One of my professors, <laughs> uh, basically, uh, he, he, he was writing a new textbook and he gave me the funding wow. over the first year, about $30,000. And then... Uh, my titanium welder friend, his boss at work, uh, did the did the same, and uh, we moved into a place up the street from Arizona State University and started building bicycles. Wow, wow, that's incredible! So Titus was around for a little more than fifteen years, and then in two thousand seven, you launched Pivot, which was about a year after you left Titus. So, what were there things that you wanted to do differently, sort of the second time around with, uh, well, really third time around? the bike company yeah i mean the first one was just playing uh there was nothing serious (laughs) about it i'm sure you learned a lot though even even then i did learn a lot it was still fun but uh yeah the in just a little background so in 2000 we uh things were starting to change a little bit especially on the road bike end of stuff and Mm -hmm. we were experimenting with like reynolds carbon seat stays and some bond in carbon parts but I knew absolutely nothing about carbon, mm-hmm. carbon manufacturing at the time. And there was a local company called Viatech. They actually had a brand called Hyzoot uh, back in the 90s. It was pretty popular. They were uh, an arm of a publicly traded aerospace company. They wound up spinning off, and the original president of that uh, put an investment group together invited me to the presentation of what they were going to be doing. We had been building, helping them with some bike products. 
we supplied them aluminum rear triangles. They sell the, sold a very limited number of high zoo mm-hmm. carbon front triangle, aluminum rear triangle mountain bikes, but it was good working with them. They, they had aerospace publicly traded level funding. So we always got paid, which was nice back in those days. Yeah. And, uh, and we were pretty excited with what we saw with this new company that they were spinning off and putting together. And, uh, so in 2000, I wound up merging Titus with Viatech and, uh, that turned out to not be the partnership I had envisioned or any of the other people who put money into it. Yeah. So um, I had an option at the end of five years to be bought out. And, and so it was uh, after, I mean, it was my baby, but after 17 years, it was the kind of the best option of a lot of bad options to be bought out. And, uh, and so I did that. And that was uh, June of 2006. And uh, yeah, so I was not the happiest camper when I left Titus and uh, had a fire burning under me that I was going to light the world on fire and compete. And basically we went from, I went from leaving Titus to launching pivot in in one year. Did you have any sort of like non-compete? Is that why you were taking your time or were you, were there things you had to do to get ready? There was a lot of things we had to do because, uh, I think your your question was is there things I wanted to do differently, and there was a lot of things. I mean, when you start a yeah. a company in college, I mean, the first I probably with Titus, my my job managing a bike shop. I think I was year five or six at Titus before I matched was able to match the <laughs> money I made managing a bike shop. And that's it was pretty sad. I, I would actually still work nights assembling bikes. So it was a struggle for all the many years. And mm-hmm. as you're growing a company and you're small and young, you know, it's, it's, it's bootstrapping and credit cards and, and all that fun stuff. So being able to, when I, when I left Titus, the ability to put a whole plan together of, uh, of how you would build a bike company ground up if you had a blank slate mm-hmm. and having the means to do that at that time with some of the people that, that we started pivot with, was incredible and we were able to execute on that but it was an enormous an enormous amount of hours and and work for us to <laughs> to go from okay we're going to do this what are the designs going to be let's prototype the designs and let's manufacture a bike and be able to start shipping bikes before the end of 2007 <laughs> wow yeah that's a lot of work so where did the name pivot come from Oh, I started out with just general, some general rules, um, that wanted the name to be four to five letters, um, and then not be offensive in any other, uh, language that we could, uh, could come up with, um, and also be able to be, uh, trademarked in every country. Cause I actually had that problem with Titus. There was a Titus BMX brand in Germany. Oh, wow. Um, and they tried coming here with a very similar logo and we shut them down and then they returned the favor to us a few years later when we wanted to sell in Germany. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. And it was actually quite a stressful struggle about three months before we launched pivot. We still didn't have a name Hmm. and we had ads booked with mountain bike action and all the key magazines and, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, we were ready to go but we didn't even have logos for the bikes. Um, and every trademark search we went down, we, we always ended in where we couldn't get the name or, or it was just too risky globally to, to use it. And yeah, I had a, I was still technically under the no compete. Couldn't tell anybody what we were doing. And, uh, we had, uh, 
I just had a small group of friends. They said, Hey, if you got anyone comes up with a name that, that we wind up using, you uh, will build you, you can have, you know, whatever bikes we're building, you can have, you can have a bike. And, uh, wow. And yeah, one of my friends that I raced with, uh, growing up in Chicago racing BMX, he leaves a message on my voicemail and he's like, Hey, I thought about something. He says, uh, what about pivot? And then he's like, ah, no, I said it out loud. That's effing stupid. And he hangs up the phone. I actually still wish I had the voicemail. Wow. And, uh, and uh, I just thought about it and it sounded good to me. I mean, it, it, I mean, we were pivotable. We were starting new. The bikes had pivots. We were starting only with full suspension bikes. A lot of reasons that I, th- I thought it fit. And then when I started checking with everyone, I knew all our, our distributors, uh, potential distributors in other countries, what, uh, if that name, how it was pronounced in their language, if it created any problems. And it's actually a pretty unique word in that um, in most languages, they pronounce it quite similarly and it means the same thing. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was, it was pretty clean. We had to sign a couple of agreements with people that, uh, that didn't really compete with us, but the bicycles are a vehicle category. So there's some motorcycle stuff and, but we got all that worked out and we're off to the races. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Clearly a lot of thought went into that. Funny story. When we were actually trying to get the bikes ready for the trade show, we did not have time to send the frames off to laser etch and we had to get graphics made and we had Mm -hmm. graphics made in Asia that were, uh, they were like a water slide graphic that went on anodized frames and they needed some kind of special chemical that we didn't have here in the U S (laughs) to really effectively slide them on. And then and then an oven, which we didn't really have either. And we were up till like three in the morning every day. And we soaked these things in water and like palm olive until we could get them off the sheets onto the frame. <laughs> and then we would park all our cars facing the sun. And it was summer in Arizona. So you can hit 150 degrees plus inside. You can <laughs> hit several hundred degrees inside your car. And we'd put all the anodized frames in the window. Oh, wow. When windows of our car till they baked on and then we'd change them out and it was just days wow. of trying to get all the graphics on the bikes so we had bikes to show it in our bike. Wow, that's really resourceful. That's a cool idea. <laughs> so there's obviously a lot that goes into building and operating a successful mountain bike brand like Pivot. What would you say is the most important thing to get right? Is it design or operations, marketing, or is it something else in your opinion? Yeah, I'd say yes to everything, but probably uh, getting started for us, you know, I, I almost hate to lump marketing in there because I don't actually look at us as a, as a real high level marketing company, even to this day, we're an engineering based product based company. But that's one of the P's of marketing right there is the P right. The product. Yeah. So, and, uh, <laughs> nothing else goes unless you have great product. And, and that's, that's really been what we've hung our hat on is being able to do cutting edge products that, Hopefully, our customers believe that they, and we do too, that it uh, it takes their riding to the next level. So when they get on a pivot, something is better for them. You know, they can go faster, mm-hmm. set more PRs, just, you know, clean that section that they've never cleaned before. Whatever that means to each rider and whatever bike they pick from us, the technology and it needs to needs to bring something additional or special to them. Right. And that's really what we've done since the beginning. And and continually try to do. And that's where our successes come from. And then back to your original question of starting a company new and, and just the structure, 
yeah, I mean, we had to have a plan of where we wanted to be in five years and execute to that. And so the operational side of it was a big deal. And that's probably the biggest thing that I did not have at Titus was the ability to have great people from the get-go. Uh. And uh, we did not skimp on that. And we and, and we still don't. And you can't have a great company without great people. And mm-hmm. Kevin Taishu, our head of engineering, was with basically we brought him on as a composites consultant when I started doing composite stuff at Titus. And that's where I met him. And he's a, a founding partner. And then um, Bill Kibler, that they he owned the aerospace machine shop that for many, many years machined all the, the parts and fixtures for us hmm. at Titus. And he shut down his machine shop to come be a part of Pivot. And so, and then everything from getting high level people from other industries and purchasing and logistics. And yeah, we just brought a lot of different things together to make sure that everyone that came in the building had expertise that was far and away beyond uh, anything I had personally. And that's, uh, that's been a big key to our success. Yeah. Interesting. So it seems like the cost of carbon frames and components are slowly starting to come down. What What's driving this? Is it design or labor or materials? Well, I would argue that it's more stable than coming down. Okay. The If you want to build the elite highest end bikes, the, the high-end materials are still the high-end materials and they've all they're fairly stable but they have if anything gone up slightly in price hmm. there there's certainly efficiencies that we've learned on the labor side and time over the years to build a, a bike more effectively and then you know at the beginning carbon was kind of uh, just a high-end product and the manufacturing techniques hadn't come along far enough to really build a bike that i don't know how to put this but in the beginning we didn't launch pivot with carbon and i had been working on many carbon projects at titus we rolled our own tubes molded lugged frames and we could build a really nice lugged titanium carbon frame that was lighter and stiffer than and um and even more durable than an aluminum frame mm-hmm. but we could not really achieve a monocoque frame in those early years and it took quite a few years with all the molding of the pivots and the pieces to get that right and so now that process is very well dialed and then you can start to optimize and be able to still build a pretty good frame might be a little less stiff but still way stiffer than those first years mm-hmm. might be a little bit heavier but people but still not quite as heavy as aluminum with lower modulus and you know basically lower cost materials but those materials have always existed it's just using those materials in the past with the other challenges that we had, mm-hmm. it just wouldn't have built a good and acceptable carbon bike. Okay. And now the the processes are are just way more optimized, and you can you can sub out some of those materials, and and some of our competitors do that, and they build a, a bike that's slightly less stiff and slightly lower price, and they can hit different price points. Where we're at, we're still really, as you can see from our price prices, we definitely uh, are at the the elite end of uh, building the, the the highest end versions of the carbon frames. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that as well. But yeah, with the prices being stable, as you said, uh, are you at least seeing, is the carbon fiber today better than it was? It sounds like that's kind of what you're saying, that the quality of the materials has gone up and 
manufacturers like Pivot are choosing to use that better carbon rather than, you know, sticking with, with what you've always used? Carbon itself hasn't changed. The same similar high mod materials and things were, were all available back in, in the day. Resins have improved tremendously over the years. The options and basically the glue that binds um, the frame and the, with impact strength and just the ability to hold up. But it's really knowing the recipe and how to lay up a carbon frame and optimize the process of making it that is better. Okay. And because of that, it's more stable. We don't have to worry the way pivots are molded into frames, the, the way the whole process happens now. It, it, you don't you just don't have to stack up as much material because back in the day you'd have to use high modulus material more of it okay and you'd have to use a lot more of it so you'd still have a heavier flexier frame um, in certain areas and it it just now if you're adding some extra low mod materials in places you can still build a pretty good frame there's definitely some compromises but it'll pass all the testing and It'll ride nice, or it can ride nice, but mm-hmm. it depends. It depends what the manufacturer is after what their end goal is with the bike. Right. Interesting. So Pivot has a prototyping department where you're able to do a lot of the same things that are being done in overseas factories. So how does that give you an advantage when it comes to development and manufacturing? Uh, well, it, I think it allows us to go faster and also test more things. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I wouldn't say it's quite 50%, but probably close to it of ideas that will build a prototype that don't, that, that don't make it to, to production where I think if we just relied on vendors outside of our building, you kind of have to take a direction and commit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Otherwise you'd be just years into the process before you could ever really pull the trigger on something. And so we can afford to, even during a, a certain prototype run, take s- certain different directions all at the same time mm-hmm. and build multiple prototypes and, and, and then decide which direction we like best or none of these directions. Maybe we need to go in a different direction. And it's, uh, that's been tremendously helpful for us. And in the tightest days, we originally started manufacturing. We were, we were a manufacturer and everything um, as we grew – we outsourced some volume things, but we still remained a manufacturer of both aluminum and titanium and lugged carbon bikes um, and uh, right down to the carbon tubes. We molded those in-house. So having that manufacturing capability both here for prototyping and then being able to really implement it at the factories mm-hmm. and knowing how to do it and not, as I kind of jokingly say, throw drawings over the wall and see what <laughs> happens. Right. I think that's one of our biggest assets is that uh, all the key people that are involved in manufacturing here have a manufacturing background. And many times vendors, whether it's somebody that's not been in the bicycle industry before that we think has certain tolerance capabilities, or if they're in the bicycle industry, they will tell us more often than not, we can't do that. And we'll be able to tell them, yes, you can. And here's how you need to do it and walk somebody into a process that's that's not their current process. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting and something that I think not a lot of people realize is, you know, a lot of the design is not just, you know, somebody sitting at a computer drawing a bike and then, you know, basically hitting print and like making a whole bunch of bikes that 
a lot of the engineering and design that happens is actually in the manufacturing and in figuring out how, how do we actually make this? How do we make it happen? And then how can we even make it better? Like as we're figuring out that process. Yeah, for sure. So is it possible in your opinion to design a bike that's both worthy of racing at the highest levels and fun to ride? It seems like you mentioned earlier, you know, talking about these high end bikes being enabling people to go faster or farther, but what about fun? Like, is that, is that in opposition in your opinion or, or can those two things coexist? Uh, they can coexist. I, I, I think fun is always at the forefront when you're lo- talking though about elite racing kind of have to pick certain categories. Um, you know, it's, I, I like to use kind of the downhill market as the, as a good example, because, because a downhill bike has become a, a, a very specialized weapon. And, uh, you know, we look at where it's at now and, uh, with the 29 inch downhill wheels and, and when we actually st- built our first 29 inch prototype about two years before there was a fork for it. And, uh, and it was, it was fast, but it definitely, it's not as flickable as a 27.5 bike, but in world cup downhill racing, it's not really a dual purpose park bike, (laughs) downhill bike anymore. BBs are super low frame weight is coming down to, well, the lightest of trail bike levels, mm-hmm. it's a different beast. But there are only so many of the, pe- of the people that can take advantage of all of that, right? So how, how do you balance that yeah. designing a bike that is going to perform, but it's also accessible to a lot of people? You know, ju- adjustments on the chassis and, and being able to handle that. And, you know, our downhill bike is a, is a good example because we've got four sizes with all the head tube blanks are the same and they're just different reaches. Mm-hmm. So a pro rider might choose a much longer bike. Oh, okay. Um, but interestingly, our pro riders don't, they actually wind up generally staying with the average and hmm. somebody like Eddie masters. It's funny. He's, he's like, well, I just look at pivots setup chart on the website and I go off of that <laughs> and, and then Bernard on the other end runs his stuff so stiff that it doesn't move for most people and still miraculously he's able to get stuff to bottom. Yeah. And it's just, uh, so you get a very wide range of riders. And for those guys, some of them can run, you know, we develop the bikes with them. Um, we develop the linkages and linkage rates and everything with them. And, and when we do those designs, we don't want to box ourselves in. And the expectation is that we'll do designs so that we can add some additional adjustability or builds, make special linkages for the race team if they need it. Mm-hmm. And then it might be that it's the same frame, but a different linkage slightly um that's on the on the consumer bike because they might not want to get so so low and so slammed and um so slack because their courses are not uh what a world cup downhill course is but we can still if we design it right we can still get the same chassis to do the same things and uh and on a cross-country bike i mean i I gotta give the shout out to dw link on that because we're able to build bikes that feel like they have, well, they, they technically do have more travel than a lot of the world cup XC, um, suspension bikes. Now Mm -hmm. hundred millimeters of travel never sounded like a lot of travel, but when some of the guys are going down to 50, 65 millimeters of travel, you know, you're near double. And then having a bike that you can still make it behave on downhills like a fun trail bike, but will, 
stay up in its travel when you're pedaling hard and then stuff like the live valve and different things mm-hmm. we can we can build bikes that really cover everything from a world cup winning racer to the guy in wisconsin where a hundred millimeter travel bike is a lot of travel mm-hmm. and the, and they'll have a great experience on that bike yeah interesting so we mentioned it a little bit earlier. Obviously, Pivot doesn't offer a lot of mountain bike builds that are priced less than $3,000 from what I can tell. And, and a lot of the full suspension builds in the Pivot lineup start at $5,000 and up. Yeah. So do you think it's possible to offer a good full suspension bike for less than $5,000? Yeah. I mean, it, it used to be that if you got too low into the two dollars $3,000 range, and in some cases, it's still the case where you just you might have an acceptably performing suspension bike, but certain stuff just isn't going to hold up to the demands. Yeah, definitely two thousand. We're not seeing much <laughs> there that that people get excited about. Yeah, and suspension just starts to to really go to crap, and uh, and and really hubs engagement and pawls and spokes, things that are you know you you expect to be able to to ride and rely on and not just completely fall apart on you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, that's, that's generally in, in the, in the over $3,000 range where you start to get into that. We, you know, we, I like to say we don't spec crap on our bikes and every bike that we sell is a bike that I would personally, (laughs) you know, ride for, you know, I'd say for the rest of my life, but for the rest of the era where those parts are relevant and enjoy the experience and really, all the key fit points, the tires, everything else, you buy the uh, race level kit and it's essentially the same bike, just a little bit heavier. Mm-hmm. And then the pro is where, I mean, we sell, that's where you've got Kashima or um, higher end components, XO, XT, XTR level and um, nicer wheels and options of carbon wheels. And it's kind of like the, where everybody's, kind of normal dream bike lives it's the it's it's the luxury car with with most of the packages (laughs) and then when you get to the team bike it's it's really you want the lightest and and the best parts and not everybody needs to go there but but if you if you want the best you get it but i i do think in the in the five to to say it's seven thousand dollar range you really get the you get everything that you need, mm-hmm. both in terms of weight, performance, and at the size of our company, when we launch a new bike, we simply can't make enough in the first year to to satisfy the demands of all of our customers. And so we could build an acceptably decent bike down below those ranges, but mm-hmm. but we have a great, great customer base that, that they know what they expect from us. And, and when we start to compromise the little things on the wheels and going down to a level of suspension that just doesn't perform that way, then it, it doesn't match the performance of the frame and everything else that we're doing. And so we're at this point, we're keeping it at the, uh, at that higher level. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. I was curious if it was tempting to sort of, you know, go, reach a different customer base, um, in terms of, you know, having models that are less expensive. Uh, but it sounds like pivot is content to, to address the customers that you do have and to continue to really just offer the high performance bikes. Yeah. And it, and it is, it is when we add technology, sometimes I worry about the creep of, uh, of the cost of technology, uh, 
a grip two fork versus a fit four fork, a X two shock versus a DPX two. And mm-hmm. just, the you're just piling on the dollars. <laughs> and when we, when we try to make a financial decision, well, we don't really want this bike to go out of this price point. We just get essentially murdered by our customer base. So <laughs> they want, they want the best. They want the newest option and our race level builds. They're great builds. And in certain regions, they're, they sell quite well, but the vast majority of our bikes are our pro level builds hmm. and up. And anytime we start trying to dip into, you know, let's do something below a GX build or below an SLX build and get into those lower price points. And our, de- our dealers are always asking for it. If only we had a bike at this <laughs> price point. Yeah. And every time we dip our toe in that water, those are the bikes sitting on the dealer's floor at the end of the year. But the higher end ones keep on moving. And so we, we listen to our customers. And if our customers are telling us that Pivot is needs to be in the slightly lower price point, we'll do everything we can to build a Pivot level bike at those price points. But there does reach a price point where we just can't can't get there. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And we don't want to get there. So. Yeah. I mean, it certainly makes it more fun when you're building bikes that, that you enjoy and that or high performance bikes. So what challenges or opportunities do you see in terms of the way e-commerce is affecting traditional retail, particularly when it comes to these more expensive bikes? There's obviously you're referring to direct consumer brands versus we sell through retailers and we really support our, our dealer. But yeah, it's not, it's not just direct to consumer, I guess that, that I'm thinking of here. I mean, it's just everything in life, right? I mean, most of us get three or four Amazon packages a week and we're, we're just so used to like having that ability to, to shop and to buy things online. Do you think the bike industry is, is different? Like, is it immune to that? And, and like, is it not possible? No, it's not. It's not immune to that at all. I mean, we, it's something we discuss with our dealers all the time. Um, bicycle customers and, and, and their bicycle searches are the same as they are in their TV or washing machine searches. Nobody, nobody goes to a store anymore. They might still go to a store, but they don't go to a store anymore without looking online first. Right. And, uh, and a lot of them just prefer to purchase online first, even, even if they're picking up in store and bike stores are a social place. People like to be there and it's still a highly technical product that requires experts to assemble. And it only gets more complicated when we get into current and future electronics and other things that are happening, e-bikes, that you know, having somebody you can trust and rely on that you can take your bike into is important. You 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 can buy just about anything online, but still, with most cars, you're dealing with some sort of dealer. Which people hate, by the way, right? Yeah, <laughs> people hate buying cars from a dealer. Yeah, maybe a motorcycle dealer is a better example that you you don't you don't buy uh, your new KTM online and then and then deal with the complexities of that on your own. Right, right. And even the Tesla model, I mean, there's just lots. It's it's great, but there's lots of horror stories on the service end that are real challenges to to overcome. And I like that we have a dealer base over 300 dealers in the U S um, and, and, and our dealers in other countries. And it's, uh, that we can, we can support them. We can work with them. And then we have this fleet of experts on the ground to take care of our customers. And it's, it's important uh, as we grow 
to continue and invest in those guys because there is a difference. They have to make a certain margin to keep their doors open. And, uh, and if you cut that out and go consumer direct, eventually it's going to come back and, and bite you in some ways. When I look at you know some of the German brands, they're very successful in their home countries because you're basically looking at countries that are individually are way smaller than the size of Texas. And if Pivot existed and Arizona, the market in Arizona sold as many bikes as the entire high-end mountain bikes as the entire U.S. does right now, that would be like Germany. Yeah. And it would be very easy to handle the backyard directly and be able to uh, effectively satisfy your customer. Yeah. And then, but when you go to something the size of the U.S., uh, it's not really possible in the same way. But I do think customers want to shop online. And even though we'll support our dealer base, there there needs to reach a point with, I, I feel there will reach a point with both individual retail shops and uh, and brands where our, our websites will offer e-commerce uh, and an ability to buy any way they want to buy. I mean, you can buy a TV from Samsung, you can get it from Best Buy, you can I'm not necessarily saying eBay, but uh, um, or Amazon, <laughs> no. but uh, but you you have a, a, a multi channels, everything from a high end TV stereo store to an individual installer to a to a big box to from the manufacturer, and as long as it's structured in a way that still allows that customer to get service and and the dealers to be able to support and uh, have the money to support and offer that service, yeah, I think the rest of the whole we have to act just like our, you know, we do personally. We can't be sitting beside our bike stores <laughs> and go and while we're shopping online, and, right? <laughs> and go, how come nobody's coming in the door anymore? Yeah. Well, Germany seems like a that's an interesting illustration from your understanding. I mean, do you know what's happened to retailers there? Are the bike shops still there? Are there fewer of them or, or have they shifted? Cause I think that could be a good model. Yeah, no bike shops are there and it's a, it's a battle. You know, it's, it's a constant battle just like it's here. We have an office in Germany. We assemble bikes in Germany. So we have, it's, it's smaller than our U S operation, but we have a full, full staff, full team there. And, uh, we have demo program, outside sales reps, everything that we have here. And, and we're growing by leaps and bounds once we made that dealer commitment there. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting talking to the dealers there because a lot of them, they're, you know, their season is shorter. And people take their vacations and their um, recreational activities and cycling very seriously during the, those times. And so mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a lot more people cycling. And they tell me that most retailers will not accept bikes for service from those direct brands. <laughs> wow. But it sounds like that's a lot of people. The, the, a lot of people are buying them in Germany. It's, it's, it's a lot of people. And, I, and I've often said to these dealers, I said, what, wouldn't you, Sky buys a bike online, he comes in with his bike, and uh, he's having problems with it. He's not getting answers from the company he bought it from, and you're there. And maybe your labor rates are higher for a bike that you didn't, <laughs> right. you didn't sell. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, this guy also needs shoes, helmet, pump, and just general guidance. And maybe the next time he won't buy it online because yeah. <laughs> he now feels loyal to you. And, and their answer just unequivocally is, 
we have enough business with our own customers that we're not going to support that. Yeah, interesting. And so it is quite the war. And um, I mean, I don't. It's, I kind of look at cycling as a big sport and a big family, and shaming a customer out the door for that is. I don't really find that an acceptable approach, but uh, that is an approach, and it, it is an effective approach actually in maintaining their their business and their clientele. I think there's also other effective approaches, but it is interesting to see that battle and e-bikes has brought uh, a huge resurgence to the strength of the dealer base in Germany because of the complexity in the service. And in some cases it's, you know, it's 60, 75, even up to 85% of the bike sales in some regions. Wow. And, uh, and yes, the, those other companies are selling e-bikes online, but man, there's a problem and and you don't have access to Shimano's e-tube project like a dealer does for diagnostics or to Bosch or whoever you're it's not pretty you know yeah well I mean it's more it's a lot closer to a car I mean most people wouldn't think to work on their own car uh, but you know bikes regular bikes Classic bikes are, are much simpler machines, uh, but yeah, as they get more complicated, it does seem like the need for service will definitely increase. Yeah, and, and Shimano and Bosch and all these companies invest, and SRAM invest a lot of money in training and certifying service staff at the shops, and so there, and there's a lot of great shops. So obviously I'm pitching, uh, and I, I've got a strong opinion on it, but support your local dealer. They're they're there for you. And, and, you know, oftentimes they're supporting your Nike leagues and, um, all your trail access and so many things beyond you just buying a bike from them versus, uh, saving 500 bucks online. Hmm. Yeah. Well, pivot has sponsored a number of incredible athletes like Bernard Kerr and Chloe Woodruff over the years. So what do you see as the role of a factory team? Well, for us, they just have, first and foremost, they have to be good people um, and great ambassadors. I mean, it's everybody loves seeing amazing athletes do amazing things on bicycles mm-hmm. and it showcases our product. But they're all different personalities. But, you know, Chloe is, is just an incredibly down to earth, sweet person that's she that really helps out with the NICA programs um, and development of youth cycling. And, and she's, always just there to coach and help and bring the next generation along. And then, you know, guys like Bernard and Eddie, they're just super accessible. Anybody comes up and meets them and they're, and and they're instantly like their best friend. And they, um, nobody would ever walk away from an interaction with those guys and feel like they've dealt with a snobby pro athlete. And so for us, first and foremost, they, they have to be really approachable and they have to fit within our culture, which is we make the best bikes and we have the best customer service and we're, we want to be nice people. Yeah. So ambassadors for the brand, but also for the sport, it sounds like. Yes. So they have to be involved at that level. And then of course the development of the bike. So having good people that can provide good feedback. I mean, Bernard's been with us think this is his 10th year with us he turned pro wow and his first bike as a pro rider was a was our first downhill bike hmm. and uh our distributor in the uk asked uh asked if we'd help the supplier frame to help this kid out 
And, uh, and then the next call was, he really doesn't have any support at the world cups. Could he pit with your world cup team? <laughs> and, uh, and now he owns and runs our world cup team. So it's, uh, that, that type of thing has been great. And, and then the other cool thing is we, when we bring somebody on, we always like to, it's always neat to see not just the bike, but how they fit with the company and how that supports their, their racing because on all our top level athletes, their best finishes in their careers have come when they've moved from another team to, to pivot. And so, and then that, you know, that breeds, uh, just a great relationship with our athletes and, and a family yeah. atmosphere where, uh, they, they feel comfortable calling me or texting me and telling me what's going on and, um, and other key people in the company. And it's not like we've got this arm's length team out there representing the brand. We're really connected with them way beyond just what, what people see in videos or uh, on race results. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you, you also prioritize those athletes who are sort of up and coming and who are starting out and then forming like a long-term relationship with them. Yeah. I mean, I, I always hate it when we have a young person that we're just coming along with and we're, you know, we're still not a huge company and we, we do often lose some of those key up and comers to a, a bigger program. And we hope and expect that we'll get them back someday. They'll kind of see how it is in the, in the big and real world and yeah, into a lot of other people they're they're a number yeah, and to us, they're, they're part of, they're just, they're, they're part of our team, part of our family, you know, way beyond just, uh, getting paid to go race. Yeah. Well, what are some of the trends in mountain biking in particular that you're watching right now? Um, also I should say gravel is hot and e-bikes as well. So yeah. What, what are you looking at right now as being like growth areas or, or new trends for the future? Yeah. Gravel is pretty hot. When we launched a new vault, um, it's actually far surpassed our expectations. I mean, we're obviously really known first and foremost as a, uh, mountain bike company and a full suspension mountain bike company at that. Um, and, uh, um, so that bike has been it. I mean, we wanted certain things in the performance and, uh, people are recognizing what it, what it's capable of. So I see that continuing. Um, I mean, the road side of things, I hate to say it. I read, uh, I read something and it was either car and driver or one of the auto magazines. Uh-huh. And they were talking about the, the, death statistics has gotten safer and less people are dying in cars Mm -hmm. way more cyclists and pedestrians are dying than 10 years ago yeah and uh we can blame it on texting pretty much um and just distracted driving and and that you know people are 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 more hesitant to spend time on the road Mm -hmm. and so that opportunity on the gravel is uh to be off-road yeah uh, or on dirt roads um just it's cool because even the guys that are way more road oriented, it gets them to a skill level where maybe mountain biking then is the next, it winds up being a, a next step that wasn't even a considered step hmm. previously because handling a gravel bike fast downhills on dirt roads and then transitioning into single track. And, yeah. um, and, and it's just so wide open what the gravel bike can be. I mean, we've got, I've got one guy here that, 
Um, I'd say 60% of the time he's running 650 wheels on his, on his fault. And, uh, um, and the thing, you know, it, it's a 29 or, well, in that case, it's a 27.5 mountain bike with drop bars. And, and, uh, he actually rode his vault at the 24 hours of old Pueblo and set some of our fastest lap times. And wow. And then, and then we've got other guys on the other end of the spectrum that are, that are just super roadies and they're training on the road with the bike, but then doing, you know, super long distance, you know, road gravel type events that aren't so technical. And so it's pretty cool what the bike is, is capable of. And, yeah. and so, yeah, I see that continuing to kind of evolve and split into, I hope it doesn't split into too many factions like, you know, in the, in, in the, with the road bikes, we went from, to there was like a good pro tour road bike. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden there was an aero road bike and climbing road bike. (laughs) Right. And, and if a customer came in, it was like, they're all the same customer and you're trying to, you can't even explain to them which road bike to buy. And, uh, and I hope, uh, gravel stays a little bit more where certain brands will, will err towards, their gravel bike looking like a mountain bike and then others are a little more road based, but for the most part you can find out there what you're looking for, depending on the kind of rider you are. And yeah, every company not having five segments of different gravel bikes of trying to break that pie up. Yeah. Well, you make a good point about gravel. I mean, when people talk about like a gravel race or a gravel event, I mean, there's a huge spectrum of, you know, distances and the, the terrain and like, you know, some of it is single track and some of it is big chunky gravel and some of it's, you know, practically pavement. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it's wishful thinking maybe to, to hope that, that all the, it's going to stay pretty like uniform, but yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, I, from our perspective, being able to design a bike to be a, a true Swiss army knife with, without big compromises in certain areas is a is quite the challenge and a cool challenge at that so Hmm. when you can do a good job achieving hitting all the key points and have a good versatile bike um that that can be what it needs to be for everybody that's pretty amazing yeah interesting well it seems like pivot is often one of the first brands to incorporate new mountain bike technologies like fox live valve uh for example has that generally worked out for the brand or are there risks involved in adopting something that doesn't end up taking off? I think there's actually big risks in, involved in, in adopting, adapting things uh, or marketing and launching things that don't take off. And it's, it's difficult to be a leader in certain areas. It's definitely easier to play it safe. But the live valve is a good example we were really heavily involved into the actual development of live valve with Fox and the first products weren't ready for prime time. And, and we were super vocal on, on that and that it, it, it had to be, you couldn't take, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Yes. I've got electronic suspension on my bike and it works like (laughs) it's worse than if I didn't have it. Yeah. And, uh, there's other brands who've, who've done that, um, over the years, many times actually. And so we never want to implement new technology for the sake of new technology. If it doesn't bring the whole mountain bike forward, we don't want it to be like the early years of disc brakes. Uh, every time there's a new technology where, yay, I've got disc brakes when they work. (laughs) And that's, 
there was a lot of delays in working through things with Live Valve because it had to deliver on all the promises of activating the suspension. And then it had to be super durable and not just, again, the ability to hit a bump and open something electronically, but it had to be better. Like if you're going to spend an additional, wound up being an additional $1,900 on the bike, damn, it better be special. <laughs> and, uh, right. and we went, I mean, it was delayed two years before it was truly that level where every connector, every piece, every part um, was super dialed to the point where this thing goes out on the market. We're proud to put our, put it on our bike um, because we have to build a frame special for it. Everything's integrated. And if that stuff doesn't work, people don't go, wow, I, that live valve on my pivot, that stuff is horrible. They're, they're saying their pivot is horrible at that point. Um, right. And so, yeah, it's a direct reflection on us and, uh, other technologies. Uh, I mean, our, we just launched our new switchblade, but the first switchblade was the first bike that we did with super boost. And that one, we spent the better part of two years, basically, I'd say, yeah, just under two years politicking behind the scenes and getting um, crank companies, hub companies, everybody on board mm -hmm. that we're going to do, the, and, and magazine editors. <laughs> That's important. Key magazine editors that we're going to do this. Um, what do you think of it? Here's the reasons why. Come test ride our prototypes with us. I mean, we sent a, a year and a half before we launched the the new that an original switchblade. Shimano had aluminum prototypes in Japan with Superboost to see, you know, will you support this? And they they take a long time to decide to support something, but mm -hmm. we had their we had their in that they were going to support it, and uh, we were even talking to other manufacturers about, hey, this is what we're going to do, and uh, there's probably going to be some heat, but magazines seem pretty excited about it. We think that it builds a better bike. Consumers are going to be behind it. But we literally had a three-year head start on that, and now SRAM's got a full line of Superboost cranks, and, um, and everybody that's doing a 157 hub has now converted the flange spacing to Superboost. It's, it, uh, it went from a, well, my wheels won't fit on that. And we probably lost a percentage of customers, even though we sold out of those bikes instantly. There was still a group of people and dealers that were like, why did you do this? Why do we need another standard to, yeah. to now this is kind of where things need to go. And e-bikes, it's awesome on e-bikes. And, uh, and just the, the, the adaptation of it, once the, the stone starts rolling down the hill, everybody jumps on, on the train and we're, we're willing to take those risks to stay, not just to stay ahead of the curve, but to, to always try and build a better bike. It's yeah. pivots, not a company that sits still and just says, well, this is safe if we just do this, but there are things where sometimes we say we want to do this, but it's not the right time. Like this, this will upset the apple cart. I, I, uh, I like to use the, one of the original really cutting edge mountain bike brands was mountain cycle. And, uh, you know, elevated chainstay, monocoque frames, disc brakes, upside down forks, way before anybody else had that stuff. And it was, the bike would have been incredible four years later. <laughs> right. Too early. It was incredible. Yeah. But it, it's really a fine line between being cutting edge and being a freak show. Mm -hmm. And 
that one was just a little too space age for the time. Right. And there's, and fortunately we have a lot of those things on our plate where it's like, let's test, let's look at this. When's the right time. And, and so, yeah, we're going to keep doing that. And hopefully we, we time it right. Like, like with super boost and live valve where, where we can have good success with that stuff because we put the time in at the front end before ever, anybody ever saw it to make sure that, that we don't have a backlash or a failure in the marketplace afterwards. Yeah. Well, clearly you're really methodical and, and an engineer's mind and, and a designer in that way. Is there anything though that like in hindsight, you're like, yeah, you know, that wasn't, wasn't the right call or, you know, we were too early on that or, or we picked a, a technology that didn't end up going where we thought it would. Not really. We've had some stuff that I, I, I wish, you know, or just the way the market changed, certain things could have lasted longer. I mean, we spent a lot of time with our first Firebird developing this floating front derailleur concept so that you could have a long travel bike that the chain stayed in slam into the front derailleur um, late in the travel. So at the time we patented that and the amount of time and energy that went into getting those patents, yeah. it was, uh, and then it was just a few years later, it's like, what's the front derailleur? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just think of that one because the, the, some stuff came over from the attorney. Do you want to continue this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to keep up the patent on on a floating front derailleur. Will it ever come back? <laughs> Hell no, it won't come back. Yeah. And so there's stuff like that that you you do put time into, and maybe you don't get the life out of it. But you know, we're not that old a bike company. We're we're coming up on 12 years old, and uh, it's. Uh, and we've had a lot of growth since the the first Mach 4 and Mach 5 in 2007. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really didn't start shipping uh, any amount of bikes until 2008. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty happy with the successes. Uh, I've mentioned before we're not a, a much of a marketing company, and at, at the very beginning, I would not even really recognize the importance of a nice paint job. And once the engineering was done, I was happy with it, and Sometimes we've designed bikes that are so engineering driven that um, I, the original Firebird had a face only its mother could love as far as it was not the prettiest bike. And people need to be able to look at the bike they ride and go, wow, that's a cool bike. And that's something we've learned over the years, too, that that it's more than just uh, the engineering of the bike. And uh, it, it's a passionate sport. you got to love everything about your equipment and and how it looks is a big part of that and yeah that's something from the beginning that if i look back some of some of our other older designs i'm like kind of cock my head and say really (laughs) (laughs) yeah because most of the stuff i did at titus actually looked really good compared to some of these early pivot bikes the erector sets that we put together and uh and yeah now we're clean lines and everything's looking sharp and tidy and we get comments from customers about that if, if they walk up and take a look at the bike and it looks awesome first it's just a nice benefit that it also rides awesome right yeah interesting well what do you see as opportunities for brands like pivot to be good industry stewards and to give back to the cycling community yeah i mean we've always got to do our part it's uh for us uh, I mean, one of our biggest passions is, is Nike high school mountain biking. And there, for many years, there was always this talk of the, the, uh, gaming generation and, and our customer base aging out and, um, where's the next mountain bikers coming from? Yeah. Kids aren't taking up mountain biking. 
and then NICA comes along and it's thousands and thousands of kids. And we, uh, I was approached by a group of guys here in Arizona that a couple of them were firefighters. So they had three days on and, and then their, then their schedules off. And then uh, Mike Perry, the, the league director here in Arizona, he had some circumstances in life where he d- didn't have to uh, work anymore. And, and together these guys decided a great idea to spend all their free time was to launch a high school mountain bike league. Hmm. And they, uh, a couple of them were pivot customers and came to us with a proposal. And at the time it was, uh, it was an amount that really made me pucker as far as <laughs> whether the company could even afford it, where we were going to get this kind of money. And, uh, I sat down with my business partners and said, you know, I think philanthropically in the sport, this is super important. And we did it. And it it wasn't for, there was no marketing basis behind it at all. We just wanted to get this going. Yeah. And it's just been tremendous what it's done for, for the sport. It's been good recognition for us, but we have a lot of uh, areas that are bordering Indian reservations and, uh, and a good portion of what we do every year is, uh, between Arizona and, and, uh, Utah leagues, we donate 33, uh, mountain bikes a year in Shimano, um, and Fox and uh, Maxis and stands and DT help us with, with putting all that together. And, uh, um, and then those bikes get used as loaner bikes to kids who can't afford to have bikes. And I get actually pretty emotional about it because you'll see these kids and the, I don't actually know how some of these schools access these kids to where they, they actually get their first, I'm going to join a high school mountain bike league and show up to a race. And, and then they set up programs to bus some of these kids that don't have transportation, get them the bike. And so we'll be at some of the first races of the year with the new kids and the loaner bikes. And, uh, you have kids that you wouldn't expect. I mean, they're just overweight and, their their family backgrounds are not the best mm-hmm. and they line up on the starting line and they they can't finish a lap huh. and then i would say in the arizona league a good majority of them make it through the first season and they go to the next season and they show up and you know sometimes they'll come up to you and and they're you see their eyes <laughs> but it's not the same kid yeah they could be some of them weigh like 100 pounds less wow and they're just they're just completely different people. Mm-hmm. And so it's just way beyond the cycling aspect of it is you took somebody's life and they, they saw something through and their goals and the way they look at everything has changed. Yeah. And the, the girls at that age in NICA, I mean, it's kind of a direction where they could, confidence is sometimes lost in teenage girls and you take girls that are super timid and then you know, they're fighting for it and they're jumping and they're, and they're just, their, their whole mentality changes from, you know, kind of a pack follower to, you know, they're, they, they just get an aggressiveness to them that, you know, is going to carry them through the rest of their lives and, and success in their business lives and, uh, in their work lives. And, and so, yeah, we love to see that kind of change. And then also just purely from a cycling standpoint, I mean, we've been getting our asses kicked on the, especially on the men's side, <laughs> on the World Cup. Yeah. For, I mean, twenty years it seems, uh, maybe not quite twenty years, but it's been a long time since um, America has had a dominant XC cycling scene, and it's neat to see that 
our current crop. I mean, we're lucky to have Keegan on our team and see him transition from uh, being a NICA student to being in the lead for the U.S. Olympic selection. Yeah. And his best, you know, moving from his first World Cups where it's like, oh, well, there he is in 40th, 60th to Keegan's in the top 20 and learning to race the World Cups and stuff and uh, and seeing that progression. And that's and he's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's just there's a whole – when we started this program, I, I, I like to go out um, and be like a neutral course marshal or course sweeper help kids out that have problems and stuff. And when I, it's always fun to be with the beginner kids cause you could really help those freshman kids out. But it used to be that I could ride, uh, with the varsity kids and there'd be a couple of fast kids that would be off the front. That'd be very difficult to keep with them. But generally even the varsity level, I was riding a brisk pace and could, could hang for the race now it's like I, I've strapped myself onto the back of a, a World Cup grid, <laughs> and I and, I, and those kids are. And it's not even worth doing the roving course marshal because yeah. one, they're all super dialed on their their equipment, their bikes. They know how to change a flat, and but now the whole varsity across the league is super fast, and just the elevation of that is super exciting to see. Hmm. We're also uh, IMBA. You know, we, we're involved with donating to IMBA, doing raffles with IMBA. Um, we make mountain bikes. They make sure we have trails. Right. Yeah. It's important. It, it's it's important. People for Bikes is in one of Imba's biggest supporters financially. They're they're also really the ones that that are the legal lobby for cycling, um, not just mountain biking, but all cycling in Washington. All the stuff for uh, e-bike access. They've really taken that on, and uh, and so yeah, we're we're part of we. Sp- Focused the most on NICA, but then the other two were heavily involved with as well to make sure our sport is healthy. And I think every bike company should be part of, of all three of those organizations so that they continue to grow our sport and protect our sport. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, you know, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of support is trails and trail access. But I think you make a really good case for for supporting things like youth mountain biking, you know, through NICA and just the impact that has on the individuals. And then also, I mean, our, our pride as a nation too, you know, like being on the world cup stage, like that's, that's pretty incredible. And yeah, it's cool that, that pivot is able to help support that. Yeah. And I mean, even at the highest level, imagine there's so many kids now, I mean, thousands and thousands of kids across the country. And if you just take the numbers in the last five years of the number of kids, the likelihood that some of those kids are going to be congressmen and women or senators or possibly even the president someday um, that came from through that background, that's tremendously powerful for potential cycling infrastructure and, and, and what the future of our, of everything from, how the how the Olympic cyclists and all of that stuff is funded and comes about. The more kids that come up through the program, the more we retain. And even if they leave us uh, when they start a family, if if they're baseball players or basketball players, there's a point when they just can't do those sports anymore. And if they enjoyed cycling as kids, they'll they'll come back to cycling someday. Yeah. For sure. Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we covered a ton of ground here, and I know I learned a lot, and I know our listeners will as well. So thank you. 
Well, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, you can learn more about Pivot at their website, pivotcycles.com. And you can also keep up with the latest mountain bike news at singletracks.com. That's all I've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.